You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 426 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and as I sit down this afternoon to record, the seat next to me at the dining room table is empty, because Tracy is out of town, visiting some family. So, yay for her, but sad for us, since that means she won't be with us for this show. Since I'm flying solo for this episode, it won't be super long, but I did want to just wrap up the goings-on at the Battle of Wahatchee, which we started to talk about last week. As you guys will recall, the last show was kind of the Battle of Wahatchee Part 1. We talked about how the South Carolinians of Bratton's Brigade made a night attack on Geary's Federals. Geary's small 12th Corps division had been at the tail end of Hooker's column as it marched over from northeast Alabama. As Hooker's force marched down Lookout Valley toward Brown's Ferry, the men of Howard's 11th Corps were in the lead. On October 28, 1863, Hooker and Howard linked up with the Federal bridgehead at Brown's Ferry, but Geary, bringing up the rear, halted his march three miles up the road at Wahatchee. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, Braxton Bragg, already worried about the bridgehead the Federals had seized at Brown's Ferry, well, he was now furious that James Longstreet hadn't detected the approach of Hooker's Federals. Knowing the deteriorating situation there on the Confederate left needed to be addressed immediately, Bragg ordered Longstreet to launch an attack on the Yankees in Lookout Valley. Bragg went back to his headquarters with the expectation that Longstreet would launch a major attack, not only against Hooker's force, but also against the bridgehead at Brown's Ferry. However, rather than putting together a major attack to clear the enemy out of Lookout Valley and erase the bridgehead at Brown's Ferry, Old Pete instead decided decided to just attack Geary's troops at Wahatchee. Besides ordering a night action, which was rarely undertaken in the Civil War because they were so difficult to pull off, Longstreet designated just a single division, Jenkins, to make the assault. 
Jenkins, in turn, would use only one of his four brigades, Bratton's, to actually attack Geary. Two other brigades, under the command of Evander Law, were used to block the road to Brown's Ferry to prevent federal reinforcements from reaching Geary, while another brigade, Henry Benning's Georgians, was used to secure Jenkins' line of retreat across Lookout Creek in case things fell apart. Jenkins moved his men into position late on the 28th, and the fighting would take place during the early morning hours of the 29th. At Wahatchee, Geary had been expecting trouble, and had his men sleeping on their arms, so the attack by Bratton's South Carolinians wasn't a complete surprise. The battle there raged for perhaps two hours in the darkness, until, just as Bratton was preparing to order a final effort that he hoped would overwhelm Geary's Yankees, he received alarming news that Law's two brigades had been attacked and were falling back. That meant if Bratton didn't immediately break off the action at Wahatchee and do the same, his brigade might very well be cut off. At about one o'clock in the morning on October 29th, Fighting Joe Hooker awoke to the sound of, quote, the muttering of heavy musketry, end quote, coming from the south. Well, Hooker, whose indifference to the isolated position of Geary's division at Wahatchee had placed Geary in peril, now sprang into action to rescue Geary. Hooker quickly sent an order to 11th Corps Commander Otis Howard, telling him to get his quote-unquote nearest division, moving back up the road toward Wahatchee. Well, the nearest division was Carl Schertz's, and Howard was to follow with his other division, von Steinwehr's. Besides sending those orders to Howard, Hooker also sent two staff officers directly to Schertz, instructing him to move ASAP to aid Geary. Then, still not satisfied, Hooker summoned Schertz to his headquarters tent to repeat those orders in person. So, Schertz headed off to confer with Hooker while his troops formed up. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, the two brigades under Evander Law's command were supposed to prevent exactly this occurrence having been deployed so as to block the road running from Brown's Ferry to Wahatchee. However, instead of arranging his force physically astride the road, Law chose to occupy a line of hills paralleling it to the east. Only a line of rebel skirmishers was pushed forward to actually interdict the road. In daylight, this might have been enough to keep federal reinforcements from sweeping past Law's position and striking Bratton in the rear, but darkness changed things. It didn't help that Evander Law had no enthusiasm for his mission. He had conferred with Jenkins just before nightfall, and after hearing the plan, he had shared his opinion that, quote, one division was insufficient and that failure would be the result, and the troops engaged would be seriously injured, end quote. 
Well, Micah Jenkins may not have disagreed, but Longstreet wanted the effort to be made, so Jenkins could only reply that he, quote, had positive orders to proceed, end quote. And so, Law's Alabamans had moved out at around 7 o'clock in the evening of the 28th, crossed Lookout Creek about an hour later, and deployed in an open field just west of one of the high hills that lined the bank of the Tennessee River south of Brown's Ferry. In the darkness, they then moved up to the crest of the hill and began to cut down trees to erect some breastworks. Jerome Robertson's Texas Brigade came up in support. However, a short time later, Law made the unwelcome discovery that he was on the wrong hill. As Law's skirmishers pushed forward to the Browns Ferry Road, they crossed over another hill directly to their front, and this was the one that overlooked the road. They also captured some enemy skirmishers, who confirmed what Law feared, that there was a sizable federal force in Lookout Valley that far outnumbered his own command. Nevertheless, Law had his orders, and since he now realized the hill to his front was the one he had been aiming for, he moved his brigade forward to occupy it. While he did so, behind him, Bratton's and Benning's brigades finished crossing Lookout Creek. Benning's Georgians peeled off to guard the crossing, while Bratton's South Carolinians turned south to strike Geary's Yankees at Wahatchee. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, it was the noise of Bratton's attack on Geary that awakened Hooker and roused him to action. Fighting Joe had certainly been warned of Geary's isolation and vulnerability, but he'd brushed off those warnings. So now Hooker knew that if Geary were overwhelmed, 
the blame would, quite rightly, be placed on his shoulders. Unfortunately, there in the middle of the night, Hooker's frantic burst of activity aimed at getting the 11th Corps troops moving ASAP was working at cross-purposes. Hooker's initial orders called for Schertz to immediately dispatch one brigade southward to occupy and secure, quote, the hill in the angle formed by the Wahatchee Road and the railroad. And Schertz would later report that his lead brigade, commanded by Brigadier General Hector Tyndale, moved up the road, ran into rebel pickets, and swept them away before dislodging Benning's Brigade of Georgians and occupying the hill. However, Schertz's report was mistaken, because by the time Tyndale reached what came to be known as Tyndale Hill, virtually all of Benning's Georgians were gone. You see, Benning fell victim to the inevitable confusion and uncertainty that plagues any night engagement, as both he and Micah Jenkins ended up moving his brigade about in the darkness, trying to get it into the best position to protect the crossings over Lookout Creek and guard Jenkins' line of retreat. The Federals, as they moved through the darkness, were no less subject to the same confusion and uncertainty. While moving south, Schertz reported that his column received, quote, a full volley from a rebel force concealed in the woods on my left, end quote. Well, those were Law's Alabamans. Schertz reported that other rebels, in skirmish order, appeared to be blocking the road. In order to bypass this unknown degree of rebel resistance and take what he thought was a shortcut to save time, Schertz directed his men into an open field to his right, which turned out to be a swamp. This unfortunate and muddy detour, and yet more skirmishing in the dark with an unknown number of rebels, ate up considerable time, all while Geary's drama played out to the south at Wahatchee. Down the road, behind Schertz's men, came von Steinwehr's division of two brigades, with Colonel Orland Smith's brigade in the lead. Again, Law's Alabamans opened fire, hitting the 73rd Ohio. Smith halted and went from column into line of battle facing east, toward the rebels. And there, at the base of what would be called Smith Hill, he awaited further orders. Major Charles Howard, brother and aide to 11th Corps Commander Otis Howard, arrived on the scene and urged Smith to launch an attack to take the hill. Hooker, not far off at the Ellis House, was thinking the same thing. Hooker directed von Steinwehr to have one brigade assault the hill and place his, that is von Steinwehr's, other brigade in support. And so, the 450 men of the 73rd Ohio and 33rd Massachusetts charged up the hill. Unknown to them, though, they were attacking roughly three times their number. Behind hastily thrown up breastworks at the top of the hill were Law's five regiments of Alabamans, 
as well as a good number of Texans and Arkansans, representing about half of Robertson's brigade. Well, the Yankees groped up the slope in the darkness, blundered into those defenses at close range, were hammered by rebel volleys, and were forced back. Smith organized a second effort, adding the 136 New York to try to work around the north end of the hill in an attempt to outflank the rebels. But coordinating the timing of those movements in the dark was difficult, and both the 33rd Massachusetts and 73rd Ohio were again stymied as they charged straight up the hill. However, the attempt by the 136 New York to outflank the rebels did pay dividends. Colonel James Sheffield of the 48th Alabama was commanding Law's brigade in the fight since Law himself was an overall charge of both his own and Robertson's brigades. When word reached Sheffield from some Texans that Federals were working their way around the northern shoulder of the hill, Sheffield pulled two companies out of the center of his line to reinforce his right, thereby opening up a 30-yard gap between the 15th and 44th Alabama. Some men from the 33rd Massachusetts pushed forward and clambered over the breastworks at that gap to take the 44th Alabama in the flank, which forced the Alabamans into a disordered retreat, which opened up an even larger gap in the Confederate line. After falling back, the 44th rallied, but in the meantime, the 15th Alabama, having witnessed the 44th's retreat, also withdrew. And suddenly, Law was faced with a crisis atop Smith Hill. Besides the piercing of his line atop the hill, Evander Law also received word from Jenkins that Bratton had met strong resistance at Wahatchee and was falling back. Law was told to hold his position until Bratton's South Carolinians had safely withdrawn. However, Law knew that he didn't have enough troops to both restore his line on Smith Hill and cover his right where a force of Yankees was reported to be working around his flank. And so to Law, it appeared that he was the one in danger of being overwhelmed and cut off. So Law ordered a retreat. Unfortunately, it began just as the 33rd Massachusetts and 73rd Ohio renewed their assault. The two federal regiments charged forward out of the darkness just as Sheffield's Alabamans were pulling out, triggering a panic. Private William Jordan of the 15th Alabama later recalled that, quote, We retreated in great confusion. Some of the officers lost their swords, some lost their hats, etc. A fellow Alabaman, Mitchell Houghton, admitted that some of the men in the 15th simply, quote, stampeded to the rear. Well, that stampede triggered a similar flight by the 4th Texas, who were now in danger of being cut off. The Texans broke and ran for the bridge over Lookout Creek, yelling, Routed! Routed! as they went. 
This was a notable federal success. Two small regiments from the much-maligned 11th Corps, famously mocked as the Flying Dutchman of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, here launched a frontal attack uphill against the better part of two brigades of the Confederate Army's finest, who were behind breastworks, and the Federals drove the rebels off in considerable confusion. Fortunately for the Confederates, Federal confusion meant there was no real threat of Jenkins' command being destroyed. The fight for Smith Hill distracted Hooker, so that his attention shifted away from rescuing Geary. So much so that at one point, Otis Howard volunteered to press on to Wahatchee with nothing more than his cavalry escort. Well, this high-ranking ride to the rescue never came to pass, although that offer seems to be Howard's one contribution to the battle. In any case, while Smith was fighting law, Schurz's other two brigades finally emerged from the swamp, but then halted in confusion. Colonel Vladimir Krzynowski's brigade stopped first, as the Polish-born officer waited for someone to tell him what to do. Impatient to press on, Colonel Friedrich Hecker ordered his men to bowl their way through Krzynowski's ranks, but Hecker was halted by Schertz a short while later. Hooker and Schertz would later quarrel about that halt, with Hooker questioning Schertz's quote-unquote courage and valor, and suggesting Schertz flagrantly disobeyed the order to march to Wahatchee and reach Geary. Naturally, Schertz took offense. He pointed out that he had received conflicting orders from Howard and from Hooker. The matter was only resolved when Schertz was granted a court of inquiry in February 1864, which absolved him of any wrongdoing. In any case, back in Lookout Valley, it would be another couple of hours before things were sorted out. Hecker's brigade did finally reach Geary's position around 4 a.m., that is, just before dawn on the morning of the 29th. By then, all the Confederates were gone. The fighting that night in Lookout Valley, known to posterity as the Battle of Wahatchee, produced dissatisfaction on both sides. While Geary's men fought well, Geary himself was grief-stricken over the death of his son, which only intensified his anger toward Hooker for cavalierly leaving Geary's command alone and exposed at Wahatchee. And after the fighting was over, there was palpable tension between Hooker and a number of 11th Corps officers. Eventually, when 11th Corps and 12th Corps were consolidated under Hooker's permanent command, both Oliver Otis Howard and Carl Schertz were transferred elsewhere. On the Confederate side, the dissatisfaction went to the highest levels of the Army of Tennessee. In addition to the ongoing conflict between Micah Jenkins and Evander Law, Bragg's and Longstreet's mutual disdain now hardened into something uglier. Despite the fact it would mean a diminishment of his manpower, 
Bragg now judged his army would be better off without Longstreet's presence, and he sought for a way to be rid of Old Pete. That means it's time to wrap up this episode. I'll let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 145. Yes, 145 members episodes. Wow. But anyway, number 145 was about Confederate politics. And I even learned a few things while putting together that show. So hopefully the members of the Strawfoot Brigade will enjoy listening to it. Uh, Speaking of which, I want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Cam B, John K, Alton L, John C, Dylan R, Josh W, Russell P, and David K. We also appreciate recent donations by Robert B., and John G. There were a lot of Johns and all that. K, C, and G. Well, anyway, besides reminding you that the music you hear at the end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music, I think that's it. So thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.